Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm also Joe. <laughs> we are all Joe. We are all Joe. Just some of us are missing ease, and some of us want to be famous writers. We're all Joe. We're all aspiring writers. We're all going to marry creepy old German men. <laughs> I do not care. Oh, oh Brenna. I do not care for the older men <laughs> mythologizing in any of these versions. I know. So, folks, we are talking about Little Women today by Louisa May Alcott, and we actually watched two film versions. We watched the 1994 classic uh, Winona Ryder version, and mm -hmm. we also watched a version from 2018 that is extremely bad. Yes, because it's a modern retelling, <laughs> but that's not what makes it bad. And all of this is getting you ready for the new, I think it's a limited series, right, of Little Women that's coming out, or is it a movie? It's a movie. <laughs> no, seriously, there's something on CBC. There's the CBC, okay, so the CBC Gem app has like a placeholder for this new Little Women series, so I assumed it was also coming out on TV. Oh, okay. So there was a British television series that mm. came out last year. Oh, so the CBC is just getting it probably. It's probably that, yes. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's a big screen version that's coming out this exact week. That's why we programmed this particular title. Uh, and that's directed, of course, by Greta Gerwig, and it stars, uh, I can never pronounce her name, Shaurshay Rauschnin. <laughs> and uh florence Pugh, and of course everyone's favorite new young hot boyfriend timothy chamelay so we watched two versions one which came out in 2018 you're telling me there's a bbc tv series last year and now there's a new film joe yes joe it's not little woman it sounds like lots of women lots of women uh? and lots of money <laughs> yeah people really like this story huh joe and i can't figure out why <laughs> no, but part of the reason that we're also seeing this is because this book celebrated its 150th anniversary last year. So it's free. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> there is money to be made off of this classic girl's adventure story, Brenna. Yes, there is. And, you know, there are parts of it I really genuinely enjoy, Joe, and there's a lot of it that I have a giant just flashing WTF about. And I think that this is one of those texts that is seminal to american girlhood mm. and sort of confusing to everyone else yes and it's also a classic text that is overwritten and <laughs> made me want to bang my head against a wall because this sucker is like 530 pages i was thinking of you last night because i absolutely worked myself into a corner i was up very late last night finishing and had saved the last 20 minutes of the 1994 version as like a treat to myself when I finished the book. Okay. And so I didn't go to sleep till like very late last night slash early this morning. And I was like, man, Joe finished a long book before me and I'm very resentful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And listeners, if you want to peek behind the curtain, I actually had to text Brenda midway through because, of <laughs> course, in the US, this story is called Little Women, but it's also been published around the world as Little Women and Good Wives. So the first mm -hmm. part of the book is Little Women. The second part is Good Wives. Of course, if you read it, that makes sense. I was under the mistaken idea that we were only reading Little Women. So yeah. then I texted Brenda and was like, I could have sworn that there would have been a marriage in here. And she's like, <laughs> are you not finishing this book again? <laughs> I'm 
dear listeners, it was at that point that I realized I still had so, so much left to read. And I had so little cares to give. It's funny because when I was texting you back, I was like, um, something pretty important happens in the second part. And I was thinking about Beth and I was like, do I spoil it for him? I didn't realize at that point just how little you cared about anything that was happening. Oh, and see here, I thought that it was that uh, Meg just miraculously gets pregnant and gives birth to twins all on one page. <laughs> it's, it's emblematic of how little this book cares about Meg. <laughs> Nobody cares about Meg. She's got the worst storyline. I will say... You know a book is long when you get to a chapter that begins with, and now I have to tell you about the most important characters, Meg's children. And you're just (laughs) thinking, I want to rip these pages out and burn them because I don't care. I loved how the 2018 version dealt with the kids. It's like you get one shot of two toddlers climbing up a stairwell, and then it's like, that's it. That's all you get. Because nobody cares about them kids. Nobody cares about them. (laughs) We barely care about Meg. We this don't care about Meg's kids. No, no. Anyway, I guess we should uh, like do the regular structure of the show, Joe. Right, okay. As I was telling you off the top, I didn't do my homework on account of... <sighs> life. I just... Life. Yeah. yeah. I did buy the new uh, Lumberjanes original graphic novel. Ooh, that totally counts. Does that count? Oh, I'll tell sure. you about it then. Yeah. It's called The Shape of Friendship, and it's brand new. I think two weeks ago it was published. So four weeks ago for people who are listening at home. (laughs) So Lumberjanes, uh, we've teased this on the show before, but it's a really great YA comics property, especially like a lot of representations of sort of just different approaches to Mm -hmm. femininity, womanness. Yes, little women take note. Yes, seriously. Lots of super queer sort of characters, lots of representation on the page. Anyway, and and they all get up to all kinds of badass stuff. Yes, they're constantly having magical adventures. Yes, and so uh, I'll read you the back. It says, uh, when adventuring in the woods, Joe, Mal, Molly, April, and Ripley discover the hiding place of a group of magical creatures called pukas, and they think that they've found new friends. But what they don't know is the pukas are tired of hiding, and they found the perfect way to join the outside world by impersonating the Lumberjanes themselves and taking over the camp. (laughs) To reclaim their identities, the Janes will have to work together to remember who they really are and to help another group of friends accept themselves too in a story about looking inside yourself and learning to love who you meet there. So if you get the Lumberjanes comic regularly, you won't get this. It's a separate original graphic novel, separate from the trade papers and series. Um, They've started Hmm. to do this a little bit with Lumberjanes because... Money. (laughs) Money, also, they have such a huge stable of writers now who want to get in on the Lumberjanes action that this is a way to get more voices in. Okay. So anyway, haven't read it yet, picked it up, really excited about it, planning to maybe read it on the plane or something on my way back to Ontario area. So that is Lumberjanes, The Shape of Friendship. Okay, I'm always down for a new Lumberjanes adventure. And you know what? Really good for the um, tweens and teens on your holiday shopping list although i recognize you're getting this episode like a week before so never mind (laughs) (laughs) well you never know some people do their their holiday shopping very late i learned at office trivia this week at our christmas party that the biggest shopping day for christmas in canada is not black friday like it is in the u.s but it's the saturday before christmas whatever the last saturday is before christmas this year it will be the 21st that sounds right and retailers in canada refer to it as quote super saturday end quote (laughs) 
we can't even come up with a good name. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Uh, so I also have homework, and I'm very excited. The, the dates have aligned, much like the stars do, Brenna. Mm-hmm. So in exactly one month today, so if you're listening to this episode the day that it comes out, in exactly one month. Because Joe actually pays attention to things like when the episode we're recording broadcasts, unlike me. Go this on. is true. I, I realize <laughs> that we're not live streaming. <laughs> uh, yeah, so exactly in one month today, on January 17th, the fantastic British slash Netflix co-production Sex Education will return <gasps> for season two. Oh, Joe's heart. Has thy heart loved till now, Joe? You must be so happy. <laughs> it was a Shakespeare reference. Yes. <laughs> Don't be mixing your classic literature here today. <laughs> Yeah, so attentive listeners may remember that we had an actual episode on sex education back in January, which feels like it was about a decade ago. Oh my god. As, yeah, I'm right? sorry. Can, listeners, hashtag HKHSPod, has 2019 been the longest year of your lives? I thought 2016 was long and horrible. And it's not even that 2019 has been horrible. It's just been long. It's lasted forever. Well, it's it's been awful in a lot of different ways. It has been awful in a lot. Of, uh, yes, yeah, it has no. felt. It has been quite the year. We'll put it that way. I made the mistake of working from home two days this week, which I thought would make this week feel like a little no. bit easier than past weeks. It just made me feel like I had three Mondays. Mm-hmm. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. It's so bad. Sorry, go on. So attentive listeners may remember that I did talk about this. So we had our episode back in January, and then we had only watched, I think, the first two episodes at the time. So we both made the promise we would continue on and watch it. You, of course, did not follow through on that. (laughs) So I brought it back up again when we did our homework episode later in the year. So I talked about the rest of the series, and I also actively talked in particular about an abortion episode, which I thought was handled very well. I still really do want to get there we should actually can we do a mini-sode in like early february on sex education and mm-hmm. i'll catch up for them okay you're you're putting yourself out on the line here brenda i can i can do things <laughs> okay well listeners keep an eye out for that then <laughs> so yeah uh basically if you have forgotten what this whole series is about i can give you the quick log line so it's a teenage boy named otis who has a sex therapist mother who is played by the wonderful jillian anderson and he this teenage boy teams up with a high school classmate who is the dark sheep outcast girl named mave and the two of them set up an underground sex therapy clinic at their high school it's just a delightful premise i gotta say It really is. It's lots of fun. It's got a great mix of heart and comedy, and it's just very witty. The characters end up really winning you over, and I'm just very excited to have the show come back. It was kind of like a feel-good show for me when I was Mm. watching it back earlier this year. Okay. This is good to know. Maybe I'll try to finish out the series over, over the break. Uh, listeners, so Brenna and I have been preparing mini-sodes to wrap up this year. So this is our second last regular... Nope. Do it. Do it. No. Do it. I won't cave to you, Brenna. It's our second last regular sode. (laughs) So we have Little Women, 
And uh, we will have one more episode just in time for the holidays, which is very festive. I'm very mm-hmm. excited for it. And then we're going to wrap up the year with a couple of mini-sodes, one of which is looking back on the year, one of which is things that you should be binging over the holidays. We've already recorded those mini-sodes, and Brenna has already overcommitted herself. <laughs> so the idea that she's going to finish eight episodes more of television, in addition to this Lumberjanes comic that she's just talked about, <laughs> listeners, it's not going to happen. She's a big liar. <laughs> I don't like being called out on the air. (laughs) And the problem is is that I'm editing this, so she has no control (laughs) over it. I can say whatever I want. She has no control. If I did just a tiny bit of actual work, I might have more to say here. But anyway, go on. That's fine. No, I'm good. So Sex Education returning to Netflix for season two on January 17th. Mark your calendars now. Get caught up if you haven't. Yeah, and we will aim to talk about it sometime in February. We will do that. Excellent. Cool. Okay. So, Brenna, tell me everything about Little Women. The first thing I want to do is talk about the title real briefly, and then I'll do the synopsis. Good call. Because I think that the title sounds... Significant. Yeah, it is. And it sounds super archaic now, but I don't think it's meant to. Um, So, Charles Dickens and, like, Victorian writers used Little to sort of refer to this time in your life when... So I don't know if you guys remember, but like a million years ago, I sort of explained how the concept of like teenagehood is really an invention of the 20th century. And prior to that, there was like childhood and elder childhood and adulthood. And so that time in your life when your elder childhood and your adulthood are kind of overlapping. So you're starting to have more responsibilities, but the world still sees you as a child or you still see yourself as a child, as in the case of like Joe, for example, while the world Mm -hmm. is starting to see you as an adult. That very confusing time that we now just refer to as being a teenager. Mm -hmm. Dickens and his ilk referred to that as sort of a little period. So you could have little women or little men. It's not meant to be condescending. Yeah, It's meant to sort of refer to that period of time where you're not quite a child anymore, but you're not quite an adult. They didn't have another word for it. It's this idea... Yeah, it's like that Britney Spears song. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I really should have seen that coming, and I didn't. <laughs> Some critics have argued that there is uh, something in the fact that she calls it Little Women in that it's maybe meant to draw attention to the simplicity of the lives of these characters, their lives in poverty, or the social status that they don't have. Mm. But that gets real undercut by the fact that uh, the sequel to this book is, well, one of the sequels to this book is called Little Men. Right. The circumstances of that book are not the same. So I think it mostly has to do with this sort of a way of describing a period of transition in women's lives. Yeah, that's definitely how I understood it as well. Yeah. So Little Women is a novel by Louisa May Alcott. And as Joe teased off the top, we typically see Little Women as a single volume now, but it was published in two parts in in 1868 and 1869 and had been written really in response to Louisa May Alcott's publisher wanted a story about her own girlhood. And so this is really quite autobiographical, particularly part one. Mm-hmm. So the lives of these characters really do map on to um, Louisa May Alcott's. And I think that that has some responsibility for the deep sense of nostalgia in this book. And there's a yes. real, oh, there's a word for it. And it's not going to come to my brain, but this romanticization of poverty that we see in the book and the romanticization of a particular kind of poverty. So they're just so thrifty. Yeah. You know, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps because yeah. they don't need money. They've got a rich interior fantasy life. 
And this is um, true to the experience of Louisa May Alcott and her family. Her father had been a preacher, a pastor, who had lost all of the family money. Yeah, apparently they did not care for him all that much. So the father in this book is not mapping all that well onto her real dad. No, I think there's a lot of wish fulfillment and romanticism here. But also Mm -hmm. I think it's convenient that the father is absent because uh, handily he is off fighting in the American Civil War. So they don't have to deal with him at all. And it, basically yeah. at any time in the book. So we have our four teenage girls. Meg is the eldest. Joe is uh, next in line. Then we have Beth and Amy. These are our four protagonists. And we have their mother, mm. who uh, they call Marmy for reasons that are not clear to me. No. <laughs> and their live-in servant, Hannah. Now, you said that these are our four main protagonists. And yes. I want to put a red flag on that as a topic of conversation for later, because I'm interested to know whether or not you actually think all four of them are, or Mm. if just one of them is. Yeah, and it's something we've Joe and I have been talking about this week in the adaptations, is the adaptations definitely take a strong position on that one. So we will come back to it. I think we get a much more balanced discussion of all four characters in part one than we do in part two. And they all have their own aims and goals, and they're all contributing to the household in their own ways. So the family lives in what Wikipedia describes as genteel poverty, which I really like as a term. So the idea here is that this is a family that once had quite a lot of status, and they've lost their money, but they've retained a certain amount of their social status. So the women, the, the little women, the young women are still in a position to marry well because of their social status. And that is a conversation that occurs throughout the text. Like, will one of them marry someone who will lift the whole family out of poverty? Kind of mm-hmm. some shades of, uh, of our Emma discussion a little bit here. Yeah, but very much recontextualized for an American experience, because I feel like if this was a British novel, these girls just would have been in trouble. Whereas in America, the idea being that, you know what, even though you are destitute, you could still find a way out of it. You could still marry up. Yes. And they are also, there's a certain amount of privileging of independence and going your own way and doing your own thing that we wouldn't see in a British novel from this time period. The flip side is that, yes, they have lost all their money, but they have property, right? They have Mm -hmm. this beautiful home. They live in a good neighborhood. Their neighbor is like super filthy rich and ends up rescuing them from every situation they find themselves in. Yeah. And they still have a servant. So Mm -hmm. like, it's interesting to hear these young women. I would love to read this book from the perspective of Hannah because (laughs) they have the servant. It would be a very different book. So there's a really great, uh, it's not a young adult novel, but I'll plug it as a really fantastic holiday read. Okay. Those of you who like Pride and Prejudice, there's a novel out called Longbourn, which I don't remember the author of, but it is Pride and Prejudice written from the perspective of the servants. Hmm. And it's fantastic as like a class critique because... In both of these books, in both Pride and Prejudice and Little Women, you have a story about people who are effectively landed aristocracy who have fallen on hard times, complaining about their poverty, while there are still servants walking around. Mm-hmm. Well, there are people who are actually of lower status <laughs> right? and are actually struggling. And yes. I'm just so fascinated to know what Hannah thinks when, you know, when Joe is complaining about having to make over a dress for the third time. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm very fascinated by this dynamic. Anyway... That's a total aside. Um, So the plot, which I haven't even gotten into yet, is really about the young girls sort of coming into their own as adults. So when we meet them at the beginning of the text, Meg teaches. She's like a governess for a family of children locally. Joe 
earns money looking after her great aunt who likes to be read to. Mm-hmm. Who is also filthy rich. Who is also filthy rich. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, there's money all over this family, right? Yeah. They're waiting for their for Aunt March to pass so that they can inherit her house and or her giant fortune. Exactly. And Beth is sort of like, I don't know, they describe her as being too timid for school, so she stays home, which I guess is a thing you can just do. <sighs> the 19th century. <laughs> and Amy, at the beginning of the book, is still in school, although she has an incident with her teacher, and she ends up homeschooling herself under Joe's tutelage. Yeah. So this is how the sort of family is laid out. The father is off at the Civil War, as I said. And they have this neighbor, Mr. Lawrence. He's super wealthy. He's super kind. And he has a son, or no, sorry, he has a grandson named Lori. And Lori takes an interest in the family. And that's really the major characters mm-hmm. who we're going to be dealing with. Oh, do you want to introduce Mr. Brooks as well? Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's a good point. Laurie has a tutor because he also apparently doesn't go to regular school. Um, So he's got a tutor named John Brooke. uh, And John Brooke is tasked with preparing the impulsive and impetuous Laurie for college. And over the course of part one, Joe and Laurie develop an intense friendship that we're apparently not supposed to read as them being in love. No, definitely not. Clearly are. Um, Beth gets scarlet fever tending to an impoverished neighbor. But she recovers. What sort else of. happens in part one? Meg and John Brooke, the tutor, um, fall for each other. And their father gets uh, pneumonia in the war. Yeah. That's basically everything for part one, right? Uh, more or less, yeah. It takes place over a year. So we open around Christmas Eve and then the book catches us back up around day. the following. Yeah. With the dad returning home from the war on Christmas Day. Yeah. And Lori goes off to college. Sorry, that's the yeah. other important thing. Lori goes off yeah. to college. Oh, and John Brooke actually does go off to do his military service. He gets injured like right quick and he comes back and gets a job so that he can afford a house because... No, uh, no, no, no. Could not have cared. No. <laughs> it's true though. Mrs. Yeah, March... but it doesn't matter because it comes to nothing. Like so much of this book, it's just people having these mild little... Sorry, I'm getting angry. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of little adventures that give you insight into the character but at the end of the day you really just need to know like oh amy likes to paint and she wants to marry rich because she's a she's kind of a scamp in that way and she's a bit of a she wants to be a society climber and meg is just too good for words and of course she ends up marrying a guy who's exactly the same and beth is also too good for words but she's somehow different and the thing about being sick. too good for words is that nobody writes any words about you so we don't learn anything about you in the stupid book <laughs> no at the end of the day this is filtered a lot through joe's eyes as an aspiring writer so yes. she ends up almost as a stand-in for both the family drama like she's chronicling a lot of what happens because of course you know she's going to turn this into the damn book and that's what happens yep. but also she's louisa may alcott she is the stand-in yes. for the author explicitly so mm-hmm. the only reason real reason i bring up the mr brooks thing is because mr and mrs march the parents have they really like john and they've i guess what i'm trying to say here is they don't mind that their daughter's going to marry this poor dude right but they would like her to be 20 before she marries and they would like him to have a home for her to go to so they don't want mm-hmm. them to be like teen married and living in their house basically fair yeah uh, totally fair <laughs> No one who's married gets to come back home. That's that's the rule. Um, so, Paying attention, little group. <laughs> <laughs> so that's part one. Um, and then part two is three years later. 
Yes. I guess four years after the start of the other book, but three years after the Correct. end of it. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning of the book, Meg and John are married and they have twins and talk about a who could care storyline the whole thing where mm-hmm. like john feels left out after the twins no. are born mm-hmm. who could care um laurie graduates from college and amy gets to go on the european tour that joe always expected her aunt would take her on because she had been her because joe mouthed off like an idiot yeah that's what joe does <laughs> that's what joe does so amy goes off to europe with her aunt and beth is sick for mm-hmm. reasons she never recovers from scarlet fever and even though there i do love the antiquated notion in books that like if you're ill what you really just need is some fresh air yeah (laughs) they're constantly taking her to the sea or they're putting her outside and you're just thinking she's probably secretly got pneumonia (laughs) repeatedly and that's what's going to kill her because eventually she just does die but not before not before Joe thinks that she is in love with Lori, and as a result, when Lori is like, "Hey, Joe, we've had this thing, this deep friendship," and he suggests that they should act on it, Joe's like, "No, I can't because my dead sister's happiness is more important, so I'm going to run off to the big city." Yeah, that whole thing is weird because I actually there are parts of it that I quite like. So, okay, let me finish the plot first, part two, and then we'll get back into the proposal because I want to talk about the proposal at some length. Okay, I'm, I'm, I am trying to keep you on track, I swear. I know, but there's so many things to complain about. Um, so <laughs> Joe goes to the city, yeah, to work as a governess for a family um, who also, or for a woman who owns, also owns a boarding house. So she has all these like crazy adventures with men folk, including this German professor who also lives in the house and is for some reason very very interested in her writing for reasons Mm -hmm. that aren't clear and so sex reasons so joe realizes that she could probably get herself published because she had gotten herself published in the local paper in concord and so she wants to try to publish some of her stories so she publishes a story that doesn't have a moral and the german professor is like (gasps) scandalized and she's like i will only write stories with morals for ever (laughs) I don't know why she's Southern now. (laughs) Go with it. So she agrees to give up writing sensation stories and she returns to to Concord. Uh, When she gets there, she finds two things. One is that Beth is seriously, seriously, seriously sick. And the second, Lori proposes marriage and she declines it. Again, we're going to come back to that scene. So Lori, in his grief, goes off to Europe with his grandfather. Beth gets sicker and sicker and sicker, and so Joe sort of devotes herself to caring for him. Beth dies, and so Lori and Amy, who are both conveniently in the same European country at this point, find each other. They console each other over their grief about Beth, and not super conveniently for Lori's weird desire to be part of this family, uh, they get married. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something, right, with the aunt, and she's like... I'm not letting you go back with them to see Beth's body. You have to stay with me or there's a whole thing. And then so she's like, well, I'm marrying Lori. And then they get married. (laughs) Uh, Who could care? All you need to know is that Lori basically says, oh, well, I can't have Joe. So I'm just going to turn to her (laughs) younger sister. And that's my way into this family, which I've been desperate to do this entire book. Yeah, it's so weird. It's, it's super weird. weird. And then at the same time, also in weird and inappropriate romances, uh, the old man German professor goes to stay with the Marches for reasons mm-hmm. that I don't really understand. Well, no, he, he shows... Goes to, yeah, he goes to see her, but I don't understand why he stays there. 
Um, I don't know. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Uh, he proposes to Joe and she accepts. And I find that super inexplicable. And Mm -hmm. then... Because at this point she knows about Amy and Lori. So she's just kind of like... Spite married! (laughs) I guess I could marry this other dude who was kind to me this one time. Which is so frustrating because in the proposal scene, Lori says to Joe, like, everything you do, you do with your whole heart. And I know that one day you're going to meet the kind of man who's going to convince you that you can be married. Because her whole mm-hmm. thing is she can't be married. She has to be this independent woman. She yes. doesn't want to be married. And he's like, someday there's going to be a man who changes your mind. And I can't stay here to watch that happen because I'm in love with you. And mm-hmm. then she has a marriage of spite and convenience at the end of the book. And it's really frustrating because you're like, you're waiting for Joe's big love story and you get old German man. Well, okay. So, I mean, really, that's the end of the book. Like everybody freaking lives happily ever after except for poor Beth who's just dead. Aunt March, who has been horrible to Joe up until this point, inexplicably leaves her the house. Oh, gosh. I hated this so much. (laughs) I was just like, where did this even come from? Why is this here? Yep. And then German professor and Joe Joe. have a couple of sons, but they also decide to, like, run a house for, like, foundling boys. And then Amy and Lori have a kid, a girl, I think. And then... Who is uh, kind of sick and who could care because the book is one page from being finished. And then there's like that last page is like a birthday party for Marmy. Mm-hmm. Because I guess we haven't talked about her in a while. We've got to bring her back in. And the end. And I know that some of you listening love this book beyond so we apologize. all <laughs> else. And you maybe just, maybe just don't. Maybe skip to the part where we make fun of the 2018 version. But <laughs> right. Yeah, because we're about to rip into this book for oh my like God. 20 minutes. <laughs> So I have seen some interviews that Emma Watson has been giving in advance of this new 2019 version. Oh, is she in it? She's in it. Yeah, I believe she plays Beth. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just keep coming back to the fact that ultimately I'm pretty sure Beth dies of being nice. She dies of being nice and also (laughs) because we can't introduce more men. So we need to have some kind of tragedy that will unite the sisters. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so Emma Watson gave a line in one of these interviews where she insinuated that the ending of Little Women is not actually what Louisa May Alcott wanted to write, that she was pressured to give Joe a happy ending and a marriage. I have not been able to find this. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, right? Because Louisa May Alcott herself never married Mm -hmm. and is the analog for Joe. Exactly. So that is interesting and makes some sense. Honestly, if you're reading the majority of this book, when Joe turns down Lori's invitation to marry, and then she goes off to the big city and she starts to make a name for herself in publishing, you get every impression that, sure, she meets this nice German man and she kind of likes him, but it's very much in that way that I could make myself love him Like, it's very familiar to what Meg has been saying, except that she and Mr. Brooke actually have a good romantic connection. Whereas with Joe, a lot of the time, it just seems like she's finding her way as an independent young woman. Well, that's supposed to be the point. Yeah, like, I thoroughly expected her to finish the book, literally in both ways. Like, the book will finish, but also she will finish the book that she is writing about the family. And she will just be content as a professional woman And then all of a sudden, German guy parachutes back into this, and we get this 
really false landing, unsatisfactory marriage, children, and them opening a boarding house for kids, which has literally never been on Joe's radar. Like she enjoys kids, but she's never indicated she wants to have kids or that she would want to have other people's kids around. And one of the things that is so frustrating about that for me is that when Lori proposes, one of the things that she says to him is like, my scribbling would drive you mad. Like my writing would drive you crazy. And he's like, I will be good. He's like, I will tolerate mm-hmm. anything just to be with you. And she's like, no. And he's I... championed her at every, every turn. Every turn. And, he's, and she's like, no, I can't be with someone who's just tolerating my writing. I have to be with someone who loves my writing. Like, meanwhile, this guy has read every single thing you've ever written, but okay. Yeah. And then she marries this rando German guy who has been like, sort of enthusiastic about her writing but also sort of really controlling and demanding about her content and then he's like oh i guess we raise orphans now like Mm -hmm. okay yeah he turns up to stalk her after he gets wind that she has written something and he's like this has morals and a good family message so i guess yeah i should go and like make this woman my wife (sighs) yeah i found book two slash good wives infuriating it felt honestly like a different writer or it was written in a different way and I mean I know that she actually did not enjoy the process of writing this book at all no there's some fun facts on the wikipedia page that suggest that she and her publisher both found this book dull and she found it very tedious to write but that when they showed it to little girls they responded very well and of course it was like an immediate bestseller yep and some people have actually argued that little women this book and Joe Marsh in particular, um, is the first iteration of the trope that we know all too well from YA, this all-American girl. Yes. This idea of sort of independence and sprightliness and spunk, but also obedience, generosity, thrift, goodwill. And of course Mm -hmm. that girl ends up married. Yeah, this was giving me some heavy Nancy Drew vibes. Yeah. She's got a little bit of personality, but at the end of the day, she'll also fall in line and be what a good woman is meant to be. Yeah. And I think the other thing that it reminded me of is like 1950s melodramas. So there's a state of melodramas from the 1950s where women are allowed to go out into the workplace. They're allowed to be villains. They're allowed to be adulterers. They're allowed to like open their own business and that kind of stuff. As long as by the end of the text, if they've been bad, they get punished Or if they've been okay, but, you know, they've tried to be independent or act like men, they are reined in and they are properly married and tied down and saddled with children and a husband. Yes. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Louisa May Alcott, and one of the things that I think makes Joe interesting is, like, I think there is a queer reading to be done here. Mm Mm-hmm. And Louisa May Alcott once said, in her lifetime, she said this in an interview with Louise Chandler Moulton, who was an American poet and critic. She wrote for, like, Harper's and the Atlantic in Louisa May Alcott's lifetime. Oh, wow. Okay. So in that interview, she's asked to kind of explain her, quote-unquote, spinsterhood, why she never married. And she says, okay, and this is like, this is like published in the, I think it was published in 1910, maybe. Okay. Anyway, she says, Quote, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once in the least bit with any man. Yeah, that's pretty much how lesbians talk about their sexuality. So to give 
Joe such an unsatisfying romantic conclusion that turns her into such a conventional person. It's so disappointing. It's so disappointing because all through the first version, like all through the first part, and even... I'd say up to the point where she goes to, what is it, New York? Yeah. I really like the proposal scene with Lori. Mm Mm-hmm. Because... But it feels like, okay, they're going to not do this now, and then they'll come back together later. But there's something really lovely about the way she articulates not loving him romantically that I think is really fascinating and underexplored in literature, particularly underexplored in literature of this time. She's like, of course I love you, but I'm not, I don't love you that way. And Mm -hmm. she's had this whole life of Meg. Meg believes you can make yourself love in that way with the right person. And if anybody's going to be the right person for Joe, it's Lori. But Joe has this sense of herself as not a wife, as not a mother, as Mm -hmm. an independent woman who writes and who supports herself and whose priority is her sisters, not a husband. And she articulates that so beautifully and heartbreakingly to Lori. And the whole time you're reading it, you're feeling like you are letting go of something that you're letting go of this possibility because of the person you want to be, but the person you want to be can't exist in the moment that you're in. And what you get in the end is this super unsatisfying wrap up to that storyline with this old man professor who has never shown any sense that he understands who she is as a person. And it's just, if you're gonna force yourself into a relationship that you don't want to be in, could it at least be with someone who compliments you in every way? Like, (laughs) you know? Well, and I can understand, I feel like I understand why people love and respect this book as a piece of classic American literature because of that first book or even like that early section, right? Because Joe is a captivating character and she's staunchly feminist and she's super progressive if you're thinking of 151 years ago. All of those elements, I was like, yeah, okay, you know what? There's there's a little too many, like, side adventures with, like, sisterly squabbles and that kind of stuff. But that's to be expected. So I was in it. Yeah. And then when she declines the marriage proposal, you think, okay, this is going to go one of two ways. They're going to come back together in a classic romantic literature way later on. Like, this is just the third act conflict. Or she's going to remain fiercely independent, and that is just going to, like, warm my cold dead heart because we finally got a woman who says you know what i don't need a man to be content i don't need children to be fulfilled yep and then what you end up with is as we said so unsatisfying but some people have tried to defend the way that this book ends by saying it's suggesting that there's a romantic idealization that young girls are particularly apt to fall into where there's this boy and he's he's a little bit off but he really gets you and the two of you get on Mm -hmm. so well and obviously you should just get married and you should have babies and the suggestion from the book is that oh well maybe that person isn't actually a good fit with you and that's why joe declines the marriage Mm -hmm. and maybe the person that you're actually meant to be with is an unexpected older gentleman or a foreign gentleman or somebody who thinks that your writing is garbage because it doesn't (laughs) have a moral lesson in it (laughs) It's kind of like, okay, there's a good message to be taken from saying just because this person isn't pretty or they're not within your immediate vicinity because they live further than a house away from you. (laughs) Sure, these are all reasons that maybe you should consider somebody else for marriage. 
but that's not in the writing. No! I'm not even convinced that Louisa May Alcott believed in this romance herself. Because no. it's not in the writing. It's not, like, that's a great message to take away from it, but that's not in the book. One of the things that I don't like about that proposal scene with Lori is there's the part where she's like, but we fight all the time. And I'm like, listen, no, I have read 400 on. pages of your life. You don't fight all the time. No. There's no empirical evidence that you fight all the time. Yeah, you two are screwball <laughs> comedying your yeah. way through this where you're like, we fight all the time because we love each other. <laughs> yeah, there's absolutely no evidence that they wouldn't get on mm -mm. well. And like, there's no evidence given from the text that Laurie would stand in the way of anything Joe wanted to do. It, like, surely his money would just make it all possible for her. And like... Well, and this is coming in, this is coming in the wake of her thinking that Beth also loves him. Yes. So she's murdering her potential own romance for the sake of her sick invalid sister. Yes. That was why I was like, oh, they're totally going to end up together. Back together because they'll come together in her grief in their grief or whatever. Yeah, when Beth dies cuz obviously she's basically like a tombstone for the entire <laughs> second book. <laughs> Sorry Beth, love you in all these iterations, but like you are basically just there to die. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> That's the funniest thing you've ever said on this podcast. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very cruel. But it's true. It's it so true. true. Like the minute that Beth gets sick, you're just like, well, she did. One of the few things I actually appreciated in the 2018 version is that they, they give her cancer, which actually makes a lot more sense because true. she can get better once and then relapse and not and right yeah. in a way that doesn't make sense in any of the other versions the 1994 version i feel is particularly egregious in this way because it's just like she well no she just died it's fine yeah <laughs> and i love that scene there's a scene speaking of beth the tombstone there's this scene where she and joe are together and she says joe i know it's true like she's trying to tell joe she knows she's dying but no mm. one ever says the word dying so no. instead it's just this weird back and forth where it's like joe i know it's true no it can't be true joe it's absolutely true what's true i don't know what you're talking about joe it's time it's not time <laughs> it's like oh my god <laughs> i'm gonna die before you die beth <laughs> i do love that it's not even like, oh, you know, I'm losing the will to live or I'm feeling particularly no! weak. Like, I think my time is going to go. She's like, she basically has a stopwatch in the corner of the room <laughs> that says like, your life will end in three, two, like, Joe, I know exactly when I'm going to die. It's going to happen tonight. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And she's also like, this is, I guess this is why I never made plans like the rest of you. I always knew I was going to die. And you're like, oh, yeah, what? you've been dead since the beginning of the book pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was always afraid to leave the house and then the one time she did she dies yeah and it's such a good meditation on don't be a lazy arse right because the reason she has to go yet again to the house full of scarlet fever is because her sisters are too lazy to do it themselves even though meg and joe have both had scarlet fever and are thus immune instead mm -hmm. beth just goes back over and over again to the scarlet fever house and eventually dies of it good work yeah. sisters yeah sisters doing it for themselves <laughs> Well, since you've opened the door, yeah. why don't we introduce the 1994 film for okay. discussion? What do those girls do over there all day? Over the mysteries of female life, there is drawn a veil, best left undisturbed. Hark ye, revenge is mine, quoth he. Excellent. You ought to publish it, Joe, really. 
Columbia Pictures invites you to share the holidays with a family of little women. Joe. If I were going to be a writer, I'd go to New York and pursue the stage. Are you shocked? Very. Meg. What's that strange smell? <laughs> You've ruined me! Beth. What's your Christmas wish? Perhaps we could send the Hummels our bread. They have so little and we have so much. Amy. I've waited my whole life to be kissed. And what if I miss it? I promise to kiss you before you die. through times of hardship. <laughs> and times of joy. And so, Little Women 1994, beloved by many, it is directed by Australian female director Gillian Armstrong who I looked her up and I was like, oh, I should have seen a bunch of these films because she's actually got a fairly significant career. She's directed like 26 movies. Jesus. Like a lady director. Really wow. Yeah. yeah. Including one that she's very well known for called My Brilliant Career. Oh, I've seen that. Oh, okay. Oh, it's really good. Joe, yeah. I've seen a movie. Excellent. And this was written by Robin Swincord, and she is kind of like Hollywood's go-to lady when you want to adapt a very successful, well-known book. So she is responsible for the screenplays for Memoirs of a Geisha, the Jane Austen Book Club, as well as Practical Magic. Oh. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, no wonder this movie came out well, because you've got two really capable women behind the scenes guiding this. So as we've mentioned, we've got Winona Ryder as Joe, Claire Danes as Beth, Trini Alvarado as Meg. I was like, wow, one of these things is not like the other, and it is this unfortunate actress who did not go on to become famous as everyone else in this film is. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Uh, Kirsten Dunst as young Amy, Samantha Mathis as old Amy, Gabriel Byrne as Friedrich, the German, Christian Bale as Laurie, and Susan Sarandon as Marmee. And Eric Stoltz as John Brooke. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, oh, Brenna's not going to know who Eric Stoltz is. <laughs> I don't know who Samantha Mathis is, but I know who I know the other stuff. So this movie was made for $18 million, and it grossed $50 million, which in 1994 is pretty darn good. Oh, Joe, 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 Joe. Little women, big money. Oh. Huh? <laughs> Wait, huh? that kind of sounds like a reality TV show. <laughs> Hashtag would watch. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, when I was uh, when I was checking this in on Twitter and saying that I was watching Little Women, when you put up GIFs, you find GIFs of Winona Ryder, you find GIFs from the new film, and you find GIFs from Little Women Like Atlanta, which is a show about literal little women. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, okay. Uh, it's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what did you think of the film? I liked it. I really think Winona Ryder's portrayal of Joe is fantastic. She's so winsome in this movie. I was like, oh, right. This is the heyday of Winona Ryder-ness. Like, she's having a really good couple of years around this period. I also adore Christian Bale in this role. It very much reminds me of my personal favorite Christian Bale era, which I refer to as the Newsies era. So we're smacking that with with Mm -hmm. this film. Yeah. Um, It's Christian Bale's personal least favorite era of his own career, but I don't care. It's my favorite. 
Well, because he's not acting like an a-hole and like yeah. yelling at people. This is actually when he's just trying to be a decent guy. Yes. He was so charming as a young adult hero in that brief period before he started playing. Basically everything pre-American Psycho. <laughs> Yeah. I really liked. So, well, I know. think this is really, this is him in conventional leading man roles. And I think as a performer, he probably said, you know what, I'm less interested in these conventional yeah. pieces. I want to stretch myself and challenge myself. And that's why we started to get, you know, the crazy weight gains and losses and the very eclectic mix of characters. Yeah. Anyway, not my favorite era. This is my favorite era. So I really like the two of them together also. But the flip of that is that their chemistry is so good. It's so good. That in this version, they're not coming together makes It makes no sense. No. Even like the marriage proposal where she is wearing what looks like, is it a wedding dress? Like, does he propose right after Meg gets married? I think so. Yes. Yes. So she, she looks ethereal her hair in this movie is gorgeous yeah it is they're in the woods it looks sprightly like they could be in some kind of uh like shakespearean well he was in midsummer night's dream like the year there before we go yeah yes <gasps> it's perfect and so romantic and then you know she delivers that line where you're just like okay yeah she's fiercely independent this isn't gonna happen and then your heart just Yes. For what's not going to happen. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, their chemistry is great. That That's the problem though, right? They're so perfect together that even the carefully articulated refusal in the book that actually does sell me for a few minutes in the book. Like I actually believe, I don't believe that they're not meant to be together in the book, but I do believe that Joe believes her independence is yeah. important. At that time. At that time. But that does not come across in this film version at all because they are so delightful together. They're also very touchy together in a way that they're not in the book. Mm -hmm. Like they often have a hand on the other's arm or back or shoulder in a way that their relationship feels so intimate in the film that I love it right up until the proposal scene when I am profoundly enraged. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And it does make the back half of the film just that much more of a slog. Yes, it does. They're completely separated all the way up until he just randomly shows back up from Europe with Amy, with adult Amy on his arm. I always love how these movies do the transition where you just don't see Amy for a while. And then another actress shows up and you're like, who's this? Oh, I guess that's Amy. Yeah. And none of the other characters, because the other characters are all, sorry. Beth dies and Joe and Meg are old enough that they don't have to age them up with a whole new person. So Mm -hmm. Amy's the only one it has to happen with. And it's always jarring. It's so jarring. (laughs) Now, you've mentioned Beth. And I do feel like we need to give a shout out. People have, over time, made fun of Claire Danes for her crying face. It's actually, like, memeable. And I think even she has made fun of it. But, oh my gosh. This Beth makes me feel yeah it's like she just constantly looks on the verge of having a crying fit even when she goes to she goes to the family with scarlet fever and they pass her the baby and she looks so distraught like she doesn't know what to do and her chin starts quivering it's almost like she knows in that scene right like she's holding this baby she knows it has scarlet fever she knows she hasn't had scarlet fever there's something about the maturity of claire danes's portrayal of Beth in that mm-hmm. scene where suddenly I understand why Beth's always been a tombstone because she <laughs> has this portents of doom yeah the uh she's great uh, she's really good and I didn't realize it was Claire Danes until you said it uh two minutes ago but 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know who I mean, she looks are. a lot younger. She does. I think that this Beth is the best Beth, like better than the book Beth, because this okay. is a thankless role. Oh, it really is. I think oftentimes we think of a women's roles where they get to express a lot of emotion as like being... It's the best we can hope for. ...productive or the best we can hope for. But this is like there's so no payoff to this character's entire no. existence. No. You basically get to be the character that is beloved because she is tragic. Yes. Like enjoy adopting your cat that's going to be real sad when you die. Tombstone hashtag Beth. Like I just... <laughs> anyway, I think Claire Danes does a good job with what is ultimately a really garbage role yeah 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 i made fun of trini alvarado but i do actually think she's good as meg this is another thankless role i really feel like in this film because a lot of it is streamlined so they they cherry pick the significant adventures from the book so of course we get you know the moment where amy burns joe's book we get the moment where she falls in the ice and you know everybody learns important life lessons that kind of stuff is all accounted for But there's a lot of the little details, like each of these girls gets their own chapters in the book so that you can actually get a little bit of insight into them. In the movie, unfortunately, Robin Swincourt had to make some hard decisions. And she said, okay, at the heart of this, it's about Joe and Laurie. And then we also need to do stuff with Amy because she's the one that Laurie ends up with. So it becomes the Joe, Amy, Laurie show. Yes. So Meg and Beth are there for their significant moments, which is to die and to get married and have kids. Yes. But both of the actresses are doing pretty good with what very little they have. I agree completely. I also think Susan Sarandon does well with a Marmy role that is turned into something pretty thankless in the film as well. Yeah. I struggle with Susan Sarandon because I just hate her public persona now. Oh, yeah. So every time she shows up and stuff now, I'm just like, yes. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, she's doing good. Like, it is a thankless role, but it's important that there's a sense of, like, there's a reason that this is called Little Women and that it is a female-dominated narrative. Yes. And you need a matriarch who can ground that and make you feel like, oh, yeah, these sisters have been raised properly. They get along for a particular reason. And you really get the sense from Marmy in the film that she has been the one who is, like, she has kept this house together. Yes, absolutely. Against literally all odds. Mm-hmm. Now, there was something that I know you wanted to touch on that we have not addressed, which is the fact that this book takes place during the Civil War. Yes. It is the loudest silence in the book to me that this is happening during the Civil War, and yet the book has, like, zero discussion of the political context in which they live. Mm-hmm. I particularly think it's odd because... Joe, at least, is very aware of the world. It's not like I would expect them to have particularly nuanced, critical things to say, but that they don't say anything I find really strange. And then the Civil War is just over, and it's like, anyway, Mm -hmm. the war is over. So, anyway. It's interesting because one of the things that we, I think, touched on briefly when we talked about Jane Austen is that there's actually all of this... There's all of this political stuff going on behind the scenes in Jane Austen, particularly in Persuasion, where you you become aware that all of these people are living on money that came through the Atlantic slave trade, right? Mm. And it's never dealt with explicitly, but it's there in the book. It's the background political noise. And I don't, maybe I'm not reading carefully enough, but I don't see that in Little Women. And I find that 
particularly disappointing in a book that's supposed to be... An American classic? Well, yeah. I mean, it's not surprising in an American classic. But these women are all so... Joe, in particular, is so... She's worldly. worldly. She would know. Yes. She would have opinions on it she because she is opinions. opinionated. Yes. She would absolutely have opinions. And the fact that we never hear that is so... I don't know. To me, it's just... It haunts the whole book. That there's this massive thing happening. The union is destroying itself mm -hmm. over the protection of the institution of slavery. And no one is saying anything about it. No. I find it really odd. It's also interesting, too, right, that the family has a servant, but the family has a white servant, right? Yes. They have an Irish servant, which is also interesting. It's almost like Alcott is sidestepping this entire conversation. Yeah, she doesn't want to address it. But then why set it during the Civil War? I mean, it's a convenient way to get rid of the dad, but you could have made him sick or dead or anything. Yeah, you literally could have done anything else. You're a writer. Be yeah. creative. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot. The whole treatise of this of this narrative is that you have to write authentically from your own experiences. Otherwise, it's hot garbage. <laughs> Otherwise, a German man will yell at you. Well, I mean, that is the other thing. There's a lot of opportunities to do criticisms or, or even observations of the time. Because I was surprised when Joe gets to New York and it seems like she's about to have more of those worldly encounters. Like, she meets men who disparage her because she doesn't look rich enough and you know then she surprises them by actually being very witty and gay and there's an opportunity to say something about immigration or foreigners in quotation mm -hmm. marks through the character of Friedrich and mm -hmm. instead it's everything is made about his age yes and what little we get about sort of an immigration narrative with him is is what he had to leave behind but there's no sense in either the narrative of Hannah or of uh, old German professor that there's anything more to them but to people who have moved to America to serve it. I don't know. Yeah. It's very strange to me. I couldn't even understand why he was in America. Why was he in America? I kept America? waiting for an explanation that he had had to flee something or that he had come looking for better opportunities. But like he was a professor. Yeah, and now, and now he's he tutors, and he's destitute, and he lives in a boarding house, and there's never any explanation except like I don't know. I, I guess I guess the missing piece there is that America is just so great that of course you would choose to be destitute in America over being a professor in Germany. I guess one of the weirdest things that I saw on the Wikipedia page is that apparently this book was beloved by two populations: little girls yeah. and immigrants. Really. And I could only fathom that part of this is it's supporting the American myth that if you mm. work hard enough and if you struggle for long enough that you can make something of yourself and you can be happy and you can have a family. And I wondered if the character of Friedrich is there to suggest like, yeah, immigrants, like you can come to America, you can find a wife, you can be happy. Yeah. All you have to do is put your mind to it. But, like, I hate that lesson from this book because I don't think it's handled well. No. Again, this is a man who ostensibly, he loves German philosophy. He mm -hmm. loves German literature. We never get a sense that he, um, yeah, I don't know. You never get a sense of what he has left behind and why what he has come to is better. No. And maybe this is one of those things, you know, the cultural context of this book and 
maybe you just have to buy into a, a certain American mythos and then you don't need that explanation. But I was mm-hmm. looking for that explanation. Well, yeah. I mean, even there's an entire section where Amy and Lori are interacting around Europe. Oh, yeah. And literally, they don't interact with any Europeans. No. They only interact with each other. They only interact with each other. Oh, my God. Again, I was like, is this part of the commentary? Like, rich Americans go abroad and refuse to engage with the culture? And Lori, like, man, Paris is dirty. Paris is gross. You guys seen how gross Paris is? Eh, this place is really gross. I'm not going to look at the Eiffel Tower because it's boring to me. Like, okay. There's just weirdness. There's (laughs) weirdness abound in this. And then, of course, when we get to these adaptations, they also wash away all of that kind of stuff because it's too nuanced and it's not serving the plot, which is really paramount. Like, you can feel the strain as you're watching the adaptations to say, okay, what do we need to include in here because we are covering what ultimately I think it's a six-year time period with a half dozen characters and 530 pages. Yep. Crap's gotta go. Crap's gotta go. By the way, let me correct myself. Mm -hmm. They, of course, do not look at the Eiffel Tower. It did not exist yet. Right. It's something else. (laughs) But there are are several moments in the text when several Parisian landmarks, Laurie just refuses to look at them because they're boring and old and dirty. And it's like, cool, 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 cool. I've been on tour groups with Americans like you. Cool, 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 cool. (laughs) Well, I do think that you're meant to find him a little bit resentful because he is, you know, he's licking his wounds because the woman he loves has rejected him. Yes. Speaking of crap, (laughs) let's introduce the 2018 version. (laughs) It's so bad. Welcome to your castles in the air. Fill them wisely, loves Marmy. I, Amy March. I, Margaret March. I, Elizabeth March. I, Joe March. Will be a very successful writer and do all the things. A rich and famous painter. You don't know what it's like to have everyone else make fun of your nose. Will have a family of my own. I want to make friends and go to parties and talk to guys our own age. I think this is my castle. Just being here with all of you. So you're the infamous Lawrence grandson, Lawrence. I wish to propose a new member to the club. Every club needs a secret mailbox. Welcome to the Pickwick Club. Joe, you're a good writer, but you are far more interesting than what you write. That's definitely a pass for me. Pass for me as well. Me too, sweetie. I just don't think I can compete for the best writer I know. I think it's about growth and accepting change. Why do you even want to get married? Because I love him. We're growing up. Have to do with that. So, arriving on the 150th anniversary of the book's publication and produced by Catholic organization Paulus Productions, we <laughs> Little Women 2018, directed by Claire Needenprum, and this is her feature debut. She co-wrote the script with Christy Scheimick, and I thought it was interesting how often women creatives are attached to this yeah. particular property. I mean, obviously, it's a very female-oriented film, but this seems like a place that women are prioritized when it comes to like, oh, we can't make little women with men. It's got to be women yeah. behind the camera, on the writing, and so on. So this has a all-star cast, Brenna. We've got someone named Sarah Davenport as Joe. <laughs> We've got someone named Allie Jennings <laughs> as Beth. We've got someone named 
Melanie Stone as Meg. I did recognize Elise Jones as young Amy, but I don't know why I would recognize her. You guys, Joe's joking, but like also not one single one of these people has so much as a Wikipedia page, just to be clear. Yeah. Uh, And now we get into the people that you might have recognized, including High School Musical's Lucas Grabiel. Best known from High School Musical as the one who's not Zac Efron. Yeah. And the one who's obviously gay. Yeah, super gay. Yeah. There's your interesting queer reading for Laurie in this (laughs) movie. That's Laurie in a poor boy hat. Hmm. Oh, God. We've got Teen Wolf's Ian Bowen as Freddy, because of course... (laughs) <laughs> this is a Catholic production, so uh, He's please not keep actually Germans German. out yeah. of this. Yeah. <laughs> so he just becomes her her professor, which yeah. really, you know, takes the ickiness out of that relationship. <laughs> God. And then, but, uh, but, but is he her professor? Because the question I could not stop shaking as I watch this film is, is Joe actually in university or does she just go into the university for that one scene? Because we literally never see her work on anything except her book. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like she's auditioning. For university? Mm -hmm. Like, if you allow me to come into this hollowed institution, I will write this book. And they're like, pass, pass, pass. I don't know how they think applications to creative writing departments work, but it's generally not as it is in this film where you stand on a stage and read three minutes of your book to Mm. three people Mm. who pass. It's, oh God, that scene, I was just laughing hysterically because I couldn't figure out what the context was and it was just great. Oh, I mean, folks, if you are looking for the best comedy that you missed last year, Little (laughs) Women 2018, this movie had me in hysterics. The problem is, is that it's a romantic drama. Uh, rounding out the cast is Leah Thompson oh, as Marmy. Oh, I genuinely love. I'm genuinely so sad that this movie was so bad. Yes. Maybe my only favorite scene in this movie is where the girls are playing. Yes. So they're playing like hot lava and they're jumping around the living room and they call her in, but you can hear that she's on the phone to debt collectors. Yes. And she has to put the duck collectors on mute so that she can literally perform the role of matriarch of this family and assign them to go up to their ridiculously spacious attic where she has constructed them or purchased really elaborate wooden castles. This is a perfect metaphor for the film as a whole because castles in the sky, castles in the air is Mm -hmm. a metaphor that the book plays with over and over and over again as this idea of the dreams that the girls have for themselves. And the whole thing is like all of the girls construct and and Laurie constructs one for himself too. These imaginary castles in the air, these these places that they're going to aspire to. But Mm -hmm. Beth's castle in the air is right here. It's the home that we already have. Like that is her castle in the air. So the book plays with this idea of the girls all aspiring except for Beth. One of the things that happens is the castle in the air shifts and changes, particularly for Joe. She's always thinking about what that castle in the air is going to morph into. It's supposed to be a metaphor. And then this book is like, oh, here are four literal castles in the attic. Like it's which to me is just perfectly what's wrong with this film. Yeah, like let's let's (laughs) not treat it with any kind of dignity or respect. Let's not make sure that our audience has to do a little bit of work to figure this out. Mm -mm. Let's literalize it and turn it into vision boards. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But I did love the scene because it acknowledges the fact that the girls and their family are financially in trouble without their father 
around. Yeah, he's in the army being, he's in the American army, being our yeah. American army-ish. Which, you know, tis the season, but it reminded me of this year's theme for Hallmark Christmas movies, which is that if there is a family member who is absent, it's because they're off serving the country. That's interesting. So there's something interesting about that, right? Because we are in year 18 of perpetual war, right? Yep. And so it's really interesting to me. Like, I get why so many films in the early 2000s were meditating on that conversation. Well, it's because that's when it was actually prescient. Like, we were literally saying, okay, we're sending troops out. Whereas now they're just stationed there. Like, we permanently have armed forces from the U.S., not so much Canada. Well, a little bit from Canada. Joint task force, anyway. But, yes. But this is what's so interesting to me is that I... I'm gonna get political listeners so all of oh, the no. f- the four right-wingers who listen to this show might want to tune out for a second but I really find this a very post-Trump mm-hmm. revival of the militaristic conversation around America's place in the world oh yeah it's rah-rah it was interesting because we got a lot of Christmas narratives about war under Bush too. We had almost none under Obama, and we are back to a recurrence of them under yep. Trump. And yeah, I th- really think people should pay attention to how troops are used in popular culture vis-a-vis mm-hmm. the political situation because it is always telling you something about where the culture is is at. Yeah. And we should be it's worried. shoring up support yeah. for our troops because aren't they doing the thing that Americans do, which is... Saving the world, keeping it democratic, but also please support us spending money on the military. Because if not, these men and women, well, let's be honest, it's almost always men in In the depictions. Mm -hmm. You know, if we don't support them financially, they don't come home safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, of course, what happens here, right? When the men come back, they've always got, you know, the scars and the trauma. Yep. Which does happen in real life, obviously. I'm not disparaging that. And obviously the people who are off doing the hard work are the ones putting their lives at risk. It's more the political systems that are trying to craft messages around their service, which actually demeans them and politicizes them in a way that is inauthentic and mildly offensive a lot of the time. Well, I just think we should... (sighs) There's as much to talk about about when we see none of these narratives is when we see so many of these narratives and i just anyway i'm just really fascinated that we had a recurrence in this film that you're right Mm -hmm. speaks to something that we're seeing reemerge. so this film is 2018 we're seeing it reemerge in the christmas holiday movies this year Mm -hmm. and i just yeah you know we also have an american president who is who is really happy to talk about bombing yeah people in places so yeah literally everybody literally everybody (laughs) yeah so maybe moving away from that I found this movie, and I'm not even trying to be funny, I found it insufferable. Yeah. I think I texted you and I was like, oh God, no, it's a melodrama. It's a melodrama that seems to think that if you're going to cast a member from High School Musical, you have to to give them at least one musical number. No, it was so bad. It was so bad. I was was literally trying to crawl into my own body to get away from the the (laughs) musical number here. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah, and not necessary. Like, there's a reason why they sing Christmas carols in the 1994 film, because it's Christmas, and you occasionally do sing carols with your family. Here, is it even set at Christmas? 
Uh, the only scene I remember being at Christmas is when dad, the dad comes home. Like, I remember right. that Christmas. But that okay. scene where he's singing, no, he just walks into their house. This is the first time he has met these people. He yeah. walks into their house. He picks up an acoustic guitar. He sits down and he starts singing. And mm-hmm. allegedly, Beth is accompanying him, except that he's not facing her. So she has no way of knowing what chords he is playing or what song he is going to perform. It's egregious. It's awkward and if somebody walked into my house the first time i ever met them and started singing i would mm-hmm. call the police <laughs> i'm just thinking that's celine dion <laughs> she's like je m'appelle le police <laughs> it's my nightmare joe so for me the main failing of this and i'm sorry to pick on anyone but Sarah Davenport as Joe. She is unabashedly the heroine and protagonist of this movie. It is her story and no one else's. We open with her. We close with her. Everything is about her. Yeah. And I don't know if she's a better actress in other things, but she is yelling her way through this performance. She is so unlikable and not in an oh, this woman is unlikable and that's okay. It's like she is grating and I want her to be quiet. I genuinely blame and very mad at the director of this film Mm -hmm. because there's no excuse for this performance actually making it to the screen the way it is performed. No, it feels like they're workshopping it. And she was like, how about if I try Joe being really angry? like a liberal's interpretation of what an angry feminist is. And then no one told her, "Hmm, no, this isn't really working. It just looks like you're screaming at your family and strangers all the time. All the time. Like when we talked about her reading her story, she reads it very badly. Yeah. And then this group of older white men who are sitting in the bleachers in a giant empty auditorium. It's the weirdest thing I've ever... Why why would entry to creative writing program look like that? Mm -hmm. On what planet? Well, Uh, and it's uh, obviously staged as look at these old dinosaurs judging a progressive young woman. Well, and if you didn't catch it, she literally says that in the next scene. Yes, yes <laughs> because this movie is nothing if not on the nose in every possible sense. Literally every possible sense. But like when they say no, she just yells at them and insults them. And, you know, obviously the whole thing about Joe is that she frequently sticks her foot in her mouth. She says things that she shouldn't because she has anger problems. Mm-hmm. But that feels like that's the one character trait that they took from the book and said, okay, well, Joe is just an angry young woman. Yeah. There's no nuance to this to this role no and the movie suffers because i'm not rooting for her at any stage of this like i don't want her to find love and i certainly don't want her to succeed as a writer because this film positions her as an absolutely terrible writer in everything except for writing her own autobiography yes that's not what the book does it says that joe is actually a really good writer and she's actually very adept at trying and succeeding at different genres it's just that she is at her best when she is writing from the heart and the movie then mistakes that and says she's actually a garbage writer unless she's writing about her own life and only that will get her published one thing the film might not realize how bad the writing is I don't think the film realizes how bad the writing is that they've positioned her to write, um, which is a problem. The other thing (laughs) is that in the film version, another thing that, I don't know how to phrase this, another massive failing, frankly. So in the book, 
Frederick's critique of Joe is unfounded and unfair and rooted in his own philosophies. He centers his own philosophies over the actual production of her literature. That's why he's an egregious right. character. I don't he's think judging. Alcott realizes that he's an egregious character, but that yeah. is what's wrong with that relationship. Yeah. In this version, Freddie, <clears throat> a grown man who calls himself Freddie. Um, oh, be kind. <laughs> <laughs> I will not. Just because he was in Teen Wolf or whatever. Um, He's got a good body. Just <laughs> He's the professor who knows better, right? Like, her writing is bad. He mm-hmm. is trying to fix it. and he's. But here's yes. the problem. He's not actually interested in her writing in the fil- this film version. He's no, interested he wants, in her. Yeah, he wants to have sex with her. So it casts such a dirty feel she's literally over nothing. all of their encounters. And she's nothing. She has no competencies of her own. There's nothing to write home about about her. And mm. it's awful to watch. Yeah. The only credit that I can give this film, apart from Leah Thompson is lovely when she's when she shows up, but it's also because she's given nothing to do. So she just has to show up and be warm. Yeah, I do love her. Caroline in the City was like probably my favorite sitcom of the 90s. Oh. Yeah, so this, this is then doubly disappointing for you totally and then even oh here's the thing too like even switched at birth so that was the last big leah thompson project switched at birth was cheesy and melodramatic but Mm -hmm. it knew what it was doing and its performances were in many ways fantastic within the context of what you would expect for that so this is like this is all of that done badly and i won't forgive it yeah, I think this thinks that it is doing a good job of oh, modernizing a classic. Yeah, no, it absolutely thinks it's doing a good job. Yeah. It absolutely thinks that that's how a university works. It absolutely mm-hmm. thinks that that's what writing sounds like. It absolutely thinks that that's how cancer works. It absolutely, like, it's, it's very confident in its pronouncements, all of which are wrong. Yes, yeah. I do, however, want to give a little bit of a shout out to Allie Jennings as Beth. I don't know the actress. I don't know that I've seen her in other things. I actually thought that, again, Beth does a good amount with what little she is given. Yeah. She brings a lot of warmth to the support that she gives her sisters before she is unceremoniously knocked off. Yes, she is. She becomes more of a centering force because um, Marmy is mostly written out. Yeah. And uh, I actually looked her up because I was sure I recognized her from somewhere. I don't recognize her from anywhere. But she's actually an Upright Citizens Brigade member. Oh, yeah. interesting. So that explains some of her ability to uh, bounce off Act. basically nothing that she's getting <laughs> from her castmates. Yeah. I will also say I didn't even look up the actress who plays older Amy. But I did love the fact that this movie doesn't even attempt to show any scenes set in Europe. No. Or wherever it is that Amy is sent away they to. They did not have the budget for that show. <laughs> so literally, there's just a scene where a new actress shows up and you're like, oh, is this old Amy? And oh, she's now engaged slash married to Lori. And no work has been done. So it just seems like Joe has gone off and we haven't seen Lori in a while and he comes back married. Yep. <laughs> and she's And Amy is a famous painter slash model. So she's also wildly more successful than Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I can't recommend that people stay far away from this enough. It is an egregious waste of time. And I'm happy to say that it grossed only $1.4 million at the box office. Yeah. I don't know. I want to meet those. Divide that by 10 or 15 now, I guess. How many people Mm -hmm. is that? I want to meet all of them and talk. I want to talk this out with them. (laughs) The people who paid money to see it, you mean? Yeah, I know. I feel like they may be traumatized (laughs) and I'd like to discuss it with them further. 
yeah <laughs> send send them a card send them flowers yeah. send them to therapy because yeah. what choices have they made yeah yeah Poor okay one. so uh you ready for some YA bingo Ugh, yes <laughs> All right, Brenna, for the second last time this year with this board, what have you got? I have a, I have a question. Are we changing the board for the new year or are we waiting till book three? I'm suggesting that we change it in the new year and make a super board of the of best, best of our two. squares. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Yeah. I'm also talking because I'm killing time while I scroll through my feed to find the board. There it is. Okay. You know I can edit, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're doing it live, Joe. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, um, I am going to say unlikely friendships for Joe and Frederick. I'm going to say, does it count as retroactive stunt casting if everyone from the 1994 version is now wildly famous? I'll allow it because I knew that there were famous people in it. But when I opened it up, I just thought to myself, holy cow, all but one person in this movie have gone on to have very good careers. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to say wedding, obviously. Mm-hmm. We haven't had to use that one as much as I thought we would, to be honest. No, it's true. Not since you didn't finish after. Um <sighs> And it's interesting because I'm hovering over mediocre white boy right now. I don't think Mm -hmm. Laurie is a mediocre white boy in the book. I think he is lovely and flawed and interesting and complex. Mm -hmm. But the 2018 version turns him into a mediocre white boy. Yes. Um, And the 2018 version also is guilty of awkward musicality. Mm -hmm. Don't sing at me. Jeez. I love a musical, but singing at me in a normal movie is just a recipe for me to be very upset. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think growing apart for Joe and Amy in all three versions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to add in some absentee adults. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, we're missing a dad for most of the time. And mm-hmm. in both film versions, we're kind of missing a mom. Yeah. And then uh, what do you think about Perfect Date? Because there's a number of different encounters, like even Joe and Lori's meet cute at the yeah, dance. I like that. I especially liked it in the 94 film where you get to see them dancing in the hall. It's just so fun and fancy free. Yeah. No, I love that. I'll allow it. It's just so hard to then not see them get together because you're (sighs) just like, no, this is the romance of our time. And what are they thinking not getting them together? (laughs) And if you're not going to get it together, don't slam her together with some cranky German. Yeah. Ooh, poor Gabriel Byrne. (laughs) Another thankless role. (laughs) Okay, do you have any others? I suppose we could maybe try to shoehorn in sexual awakening since it really is all about these girls becoming women and realizing that they want to get married, but it's also not in the way that we've used it before. Yeah, I'm saying no to that. Okay. I think we're I think we've got it. This is us. Okay. Uh that's not a line. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, you know what? Allusions to classic lit. Joe's such a reader. Um, and they make references to Shakespeare and to all kinds of things when she and Laurie are talking about books. Fair. Okay. Well. Uh... Which almost was a line. If someone had just gotten abused in this book, we would be, we would have oh, had a line. Brenna. Oh, Brenna. <laughs> <laughs> you could have also said convenient expertise, but sure, let's go with abuse. <laughs> Technically, Amy gets slapped on the hand by her school teacher. She does. I'm not counting that. Move on. Move on. All right. All right. All right. All right. So 
If you want to tell us about how egregiously we have misread Little Women, you are more than welcome to find us on the Twitters. Hashtag HKHSPod will get both of us. If you just want to talk to Joe, Joe, where do they find you? You can reach me at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's Gray with an A. If you have a longer treatise on why Joe and what's his face, Mr. German, are actually perfect for each other, you I can love email how you can't remember his name this entire episode. <laughs> Free Drick. <laughs> I stand by what I said. Uh, you can email us at hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And next week is our very, very special Christmas episode. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's our last regular sode of it's the our year. our last regular sode of 2019. And mm-hmm. despite his best wishes, I'm making Joe read another John Green book. Yep. I hope you enjoy this, Brenna, because as I've mentioned, it's the last time. <laughs> so we are reading the John Green, Maureen Johnson, and one other person wow. book. <laughs> I really don't like that third story, Joe. Okay. Called Let It Snow. So it's three novellas that take place in the same universe. And we will be watching the film adaptation, uh, which is a Netflix drop from November. So mm-hmm, you can check mm-hmm. it out. It's ready to go. And we will be talking about it for an episode that drops on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So festive. Festive. Uh, so until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen.